and welcome to episode three of the DMH Stallard Employment Group podcast. In this session, we're going to be talking about the government's recent announcement seeking to, as they put it, crack down on employers' use of fire and rehire. And that culminated in January of this year, 2023, in the announcement of a new code of practice. Um, what does it mean for employers? Should we be worried about breaching the code? Does it actually address the behaviour that employees are most likely to experience here and that um, came to the fore with the PO uh, events of last year? And uh, so, lots for us to discuss today. And with me to discuss the subject of fire and rehire are Rebecca Thornley Gibson, partner in the employment team with over 30 years' experience of seeing the good, the bad, and as she puts it, the downright ugly in employee relations. Uh, Rebecca has significant experience in the travel sector, which was one of the worst hit sectors during the pandemic and, and had to make quick and difficult decisions, including where fire and rehire issues needed to be considered. So she's well-placed to talk through these issues with us. And Simon Bellum, again, partner with over 30 years experience of helping employers navigate around the complexities of the contract of employment. So we've got a wealth of experience with us to talk through the issue. So getting us started, Rebecca, I think we have to start with P&O. Uh, that's where everybody kind of comes to this more recently and what people will think of when they hear the government talking about fire and rehire, and it's really what launched all of this discussion about codes and changes. So there was a huge amount of attention from the press uh, around that mass firing of, of staff without prior consultation. And understandably, a lot of people were angry about that. Could you summarise for us what actually happened and, and what the gap in the law is, I guess, is the key point that meant it wasn't unlawful? Yes. Hi, Adam. Uh, I think the P&O um, ferries, um, um, issue last year was was a pretty shocking um, example of employee relations going completely wrong. So P&O made just under 800 of its seafarers redundant and they did that with immediate effects um, almost uh, well, just over a year ago on the 17th of March last year. Uh, they didn't consult with the workforce at all. They, in fact, announced the redundancies on a pre-recorded uh, video call to all of the staff. And they announced plans to move to a new operating model using third-party agency workers to crew the, um, the, the ships. And as you say, Adam, there was so much attention um, about this particular situation. Um, a lot of attention, obviously, um, from the employees itself, from the unions, from the press, but the government uh, were incredibly cross about P&O, effectively just saying the legislation is there, we are not going to um, comply with it at all, we have made a commercial decision, we're going to pay compensation to our employees um, in lieu of following our statutory obligations. And the government was so cross that they called for P&O CEO to attend the Transport Select Committee about a week later. So pretty, pretty swift action. But after the initial concerns and threats of criminal action against P&O for failure to uh, notify that they were making redundancies to um, the Secretary, Secretary of State, um, there was then probably um, a bit of a damp squib moment where the insolvency service, who can take criminal prosecutions 
against companies that fail to notify of redundancies um, had advice to say, well, look, we've got a 50-50 possibility of a prosecution here in respect mm -hmm. to the failure to notify. It's not enough. We're just going to let this go. There were so many issues in the PO um, uh, situation involving jurisdictional matters, uh, rights relating to seafarers that are different to rights relating to land-based employees, effectively, um, redundancy consultation, collective consultation, unfair dismissal issues. Ironically, however, fire and rehire didn't really appear in the P&O case, even though, as you said, Adam, the consultation that we're seeing at the moment on fire and rehire seems to be ignited by the P&O case. And I think it's just a reaction, really, of the government saying we are not having large corporates um, completely ignoring um, good employment practice um, and legislation, and we are going to put in place um, steps to uh, prevent that in the future. So, so yes, PO wasn't really a fire and rehire case, but everybody thinks it was because they just fired people. Um, yeah. The only people that they were hiring were completely different people, as in the agency staff. Yeah, that's a great intro. Thank you, because it, it does bring out this big point, which is actually PO is a pretty unusual, exceptional set of facts. In terms of what actually happened isn't really far and rehired the seafarers point with it's is quite unique and yet the, the the response and the publication we've had about far and rehire is, is dealing with a, a more more common issue actually which hasn't had the same amount of press attention and um uh you know it's something that's more likely to be experienced by workers in in england and wales um simon i, I, I mean understandably a lot of people were angry about what happened with pno I, I wonder whether really what's happened is the government sense the perception of weakness in the legislation and perhaps in its response in that aside from the public relations, so the PR damage, the public probably sensed that there wasn't really any repercussions for P&O and, and the government's language talks about cracking down on unscrupulous employers. But that does what the government is proposing to do really live up to that strong rhetoric uh, what what is the government actually doing or perhaps saying it will do to discourage employers what what, what are the threats yeah hi adam i think that the um the, the rhetoric is noisy from the government and i think that that is a reflection of the publicity that arose from pno and um, so the language is quite emotive it's cracked down and fire and rehire and references to pno but I think as we've been talking about, um, the code of practice really is looking at a, a different issue, which is about the practice of employers to fire and then rehire the same staff. And I think that the government's uh, proposals are a measured response to something which has been happening over a long period of time. And that is that when the, the idea of being able to change terms of employment through firing and rehiring staff was first introduced, most employers were pretty tentative about how they would go about it. They'd be worried about the risks of tribunals criticising them. They'd be worried about the risk of tribunals not accepting the business reasons 
for the change in in terms of employment. But over a period of time, uh, employers have got bolder and bolder. And uh, I think now uh, it has increasingly been used as a threat, as a tactic to force through um, changes in terms of employment. I think uh, employers basically say to themselves, right, well, provided we've got a reasonably decent business reason for changing the terms of employment, provided we go through some sort of process to suggest that we try to get agreement of staff to the change in terms before we impose it through fire and, and rehire, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to get criticised by an employment tribunal. And that's what this um, proposed legislation does. It says, no, it's uh, it, the, the entitlement to change terms through the process of rehiring and uh, firing and rehiring has been abused. Uh, it shouldn't be used as a threat, as a tactic to force employees to uh, agree to a change in terms. And critically, that the consultation has got to be meaningful and the the way in which the draft code of practice as it now stands describes what good consultation should look like is much more specific than previous codes of practice uh, in relation to consultation uh, it, it does the the obvious which is to say well consultation must be in good faith and uh, transparent etc which you see in all codes but it goes a bit further than that and it says that well Employers got to be searching for compromise if the employees uh, aren't initially willing to agree. The um, employer has got to search for ways to mitigate the impact of the proposed change. And it uh, importantly, if uh, an employer fails to comply with the code, then it can be taken into account by tribunals in considering claims such as unfair dismissal. And I'll be very interested to see uh, how tribunals approach the matter. I suspect that there will be many uh, claimants and claimants' representatives who seek to rely on the specifics of the code, which, as I say, is reasonably detailed, the draft code, as to what an employer should be doing, to say, well, look, my employer just didn't consult properly. Um, they didn't comply with the provisions of the code, and therefore this process is unfair. Mm. So I think that the government's actions are pretty tough. I think that they do potentially have teeth, depending on what the uh, the code ultimately says. Um, and uh, so it, I think it is a, a reasonably tough measure to to tackle what is a long-standing issue, which has been highlighted by uh, more recent events such as PO. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I mean, the thing that I've, I've been reflecting on this is, um, Rebecca, I don't know your thoughts on this, but the code obviously sets out, as you say, Simon, that's that's a really helpful summary of this very specific aspects of it. And it's clearly talking about consultation that's meaningful. And one of the things that came out of P&O was if you're an organisation, you can take a decision that um, it's going to cost us money, but we're prepared to just not follow the steps and that actually that's that's a fairly fairly binary decision and then there were no real repercussions what do we think there's, there's an uplift i think to the to the awarding tribunal is the proposal which we're familiar with from the disciplinary grievance procedure code um 25 percent but do we think that's enough of a threat rebecca 25 percent uplift but what about i mean i'm thinking does the code 
and Simon, you may be able to help with this, does the code talk or is it going to end up in a place where it says the probability of reinstatement or re-engagement will be much higher? Because you often think about cases and you think, well, what, do we have 1% of cases reinstate or re-engage an employee? But is that the thing that will really change a big organisation who's budgeted for this decision? If actually, you know, it's not just money, they might all be ordered back to the shop floor, so to speak. Yes, I mean, that really would be the punitive um, stance for a tribunal to take, because at the moment, I think that just awarding, you know, potentially up to 25% as a punitive uplift on um, compensation for um, the employee isn't going to cut it, because mm -hmm. the, code, the code doesn't stop an employer going ahead and making changes. It just applies at the moment that um, uplift if an employee decides that they're going to take some external legal action because they're not happy with what has happened. And I think, you know, when you have legislation that doesn't stop an employer doing something, they will always take a commercial decision as to whether economically it's actually worth breaking the law. Yeah. Um, but if they felt that there was the risk of a reinstatement and, and they had been told. Yeah, I mean, I guess that maybe maybe that's, the point, Rebecca, I'm being overly ambitious and unrealistic about this idea of reinstatement, re-engagement. You've been in the tribunals, both of you, very many times. I've seen remedy hearing. There's the point you made about the individual doesn't want to be reinstated. The, the tribunal looks and goes, this relationship is now acrimonious, has broken down. Maybe that's the thing, Simon. It's in reality, how likely is it that reinstatement or re-engagement is going to be something that either party wants? Um, so what's the point in threatening it as something that now is much more real and present as a threat for employers? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think that it is a, uh, a potential threat um, because what you, the relationship, has it broken down? Employers have said, we want to change your terms of employment. We want to, to introduce some change into the way you work. Uh, employee says, I don't want that to happen. They can't agree on it, dismissed, and uh, the employee uh, brings a claim of unfair dismissal because they don't accept the offer of rehire or re-engagement. Um, where's the breakdown in the relationship? They've just had a disagreement over what the terms of the relationship should be. And so I think it is realistic a tribunal would say, well, it is practical to order reinstatement. And um, as I say, the, uh, the code of practice ought to be taken into account by the tribunal uh, in taking its decisions. So I think that, yeah, the, the threat of 25% uplift is part of the teeth of the legislation, but I also think the increased risk of a tribunal saying, no, this was an unfair dismissal, and as you're suggesting, the risk of uh, an order for reinstatement, are things that are going to make employers think harder about how they go about these uh, processes. Um, as, as we're saying, reinstatement is probably the ultimate nightmare for most employers. Um, yeah. I, I think as well, Simon, if you look at the purpose of the code, it is very much about taking all reasonable steps to explore alternatives to dismissal. Mm -hmm. And those reasonable steps have to be taken even after changes have been made to see if those changes are still needed as well. So if an employment judge looks, you know, looks closely at the purpose and they say, well, an alternative to dismissal now would be reinstatement and therefore reinstatement is aligning with the purpose of the code that might encourage more employment judges to, um, you know, to agree to a reinstatement 
Um, mm. But as I said, you know, as sure. I said before, employees have got to want that. It's got to be a mutual decision. Yes, or yeah. say or say that they want that for the purposes of uh, upping the pressure and heat in a in a set of proceedings that they suspect they'll never get to tribunal over. You know, we'll have the usual settlement. But that that is really interesting because we're talking about a sort of retrospective unraveling of the as the government described it, unscrupulous plans of the employer, that these can be unraveled before the employer's eyes. Um, and that's going to be interesting to see, isn't it, how much of that that element remains and is emphasised in the final publishing of the code. Um, I, I, Simon's point was, was, was well made about this coming in the context of a greater um, degree of comfort for employers about going to em groups of employees around their terms and adopting the, the approach of if, well, if we can't agree we will fire and refire and of course we had the Woolworths case law and litigation around the issue of establishment because often the big threat here and the thing that we as lawyers advising our clients about is obviously collective consultation is a big potentially very expensive litigation um Woolworths then said well no each independently essentially each independently operating part of a business could be a separate establishment on this issue of the trigger of 20 or more redundancies which in this broad sense and then um obviously you look at 20 or more in a 90-day window is this just going to be uh, picking up that point rebecca is this just going to be relevant to employers in that large-scale scenario we think of pno was massive simon said 300 is it going to be only applicable to the 20 or more terminations in a single establishment um no i mean the the the, the code doesn't put any um, um, any numbers um, on the people that will be impacted, the employees that will be impacted. So you could have a situation where an employer is seeking to remove, let's say, a, um, a shift allowance for one employee, and they would still have to follow the code in respect of only one employee who may be impacted yeah. by a particular um, change. So, so this is, this I is really think important, in, isn't it? Because it's, it yeah. perception will be, this is about P&O, it's large scale mm -hmm. changes in terms of conditions. I, as my employer talking to this sales team of three, don't need to worry potentially. But what you're telling us is very clear. No, the code has no wordings that say that's an excluded, that doesn't count, you don't have to worry about it. Um, you've you've said it could be just one person. Absolutely. In reality, you can imagine a small employer not knowing about this code, not knowing about a lot of codes in employment law. Yeah. Uh, you know, a small employer seeking to make a change, getting cross with the employee that doesn't necessarily, you know, agree to those changes, and saying, "Well, you know, take it or leave it." Situation. You know, this is what is going to happen. Um, if we go back to the pandemic where employees were having to um, take pay cuts or potentially lose their job this was happening you know an awful lot and yes you know sometimes with large employers but often you know with very small employers that had to say to their employees um, you know even with you know potential furlough um, I may still have to um, um, cut your salary and I think it's the small employers that are going to be quite shocked that there's this extra layer of um, 
compliance that they have to go through before that before they can make changes in reality this is going to be used by unions um, as a great um, negotiation tool and employers are going to be beaten quite hard by those unions um, if they see that their code isn't being followed you know on a line by line basis and I think what's interesting about this code is this is this need for continued review of the changes after changes have actually been made to monitor the impact of the changes um, what on earth is that going to look like is an employer going to turn around you know 12 months on and say well you know we made these changes a year ago do we still need to make these changes um, here's our note no we don't you know carry on that's going to be really difficult I think in practice how you monitor the impact um, you know for how long do you have to carry on monitoring what evidence do employers need to say that they have complied with that aspect of the code um, I think that's that, that's a really tricky one but it is a draft code at the moment um, and those are the sorts of questions that are likely to be raised in the consultation over the code Mm. I, I, I came at this on that point you made about the unions wondering, probably being overly cynical, whether that part of this was also um, the objective of the government was also around um, taking away some of the power of the unions. I'll just put it out there, Simon, I don't know what you think, but the idea that if you've got a code that protects you, that you can enforce individually in tribunals or as a group of, of, of employees together. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that it, the objective will be achieved for the reasons Rebecca mentioned, but is it really saying it's further moving away from a unionised environment and the power of the union? Because these are things that could be um, much more obviously put in the hands of unions for large scale scenarios. What do you think, Simon? Well, the, the draft code as it stands uh, stipulates that the a consultation should be with union where a union is recognised and it should be with representatives where you've got a representative body which is uh, already uh, identified as the appropriate body for consultation and and that's a parallel to other um, consultation processes such as, such as TUPI consultation um, and it's only if the unions aren't there or if the existing appointed reps aren't there that the employer then goes and considers consultation with the individuals. And even then, the code is referring to uh, a need on the part of the employer to consider whether the individuals should be asked to nominate representatives effectively to hold elections. So it doesn't go as far as the existing Tupian redundancy uh, consultation legislation which requires uh, em employers to set up e elections but it uh, suggests that well if uh, you, there's no existing trade union or appointed reps then go to the individuals that do consider whether they should be holding an election to appoint representatives. Mm, yeah that, uh, that's a point that comes out then in terms of what the implications might be for employers around appointment of employee rep groups. I mean, we saw in the pandemic, didn't we? Had certainly saw with clients you started to have a greater focus on those when you were dealing with health and safety matters to implement in response to COVID. Maybe, uh, Rebecca, what do you think? Maybe that, depending on what the code looks like in the end, one step change you might see, well, maybe further evolution is into employees who aren't in a unionized environment 
saying we, we're clearly going to need a good functioning employee rep group, not least on that point you made about well, where, how often do we go back around reviewing these changes and saying, well, they didn't really work, so we're going to rewind one or change another again. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the code, it's, it's another example of shining, shining a brighter spotlight on the employee voice in an organisation and the involvement of the employee in key decisions that are going to be made that impact on them. So where you have that, sometimes, you know, employees are more comfortable if they have an internal employee representative committee, um, staff committee, call it what you want. Um, um, not all employees want a unionised environment, uh, want to join a union, but they do still want a voice within their organisation. And codes like this that, you know, require that dialogue um, form part and parcel of providing that extra um, voice to employees. Yeah, indeed. I'm going to ask you in a minute, but when we wrap up, just the, the impossible question of whether you think and maybe in what way this is going to make a material difference to the unscrupulous employers that the government describes them as. Uh, but before we do that, um, Simon, what are the key dates? When are we actually going to see something of real binding substance or even just that's not a draft anymore on this? When do we, when do we actually, when can we expect this to actually change? Well, we don't know for sure. The, um, the government has called for responses to the draft code by the 18th of April. And uh, once it's got those responses, it's going to consider them and then publish the uh, the final code. And uh, the consultation says that it will be introduced when parliamentary time allows. So that's anybody's guess, really. I mean, my um, my guess is that it will be during the currency of this parliament, so sometime before the end of 2024. Um, it's conceivable that it might be one of these things that... Um, gets kicked into the long grass there might never be time but um, I, I suspect we will see something and I suspect that it'll be towards the tail end of this year or 2024 but it is um, guesswork as far as parliamentary time is concerned there's pl plenty of other things on the agenda as we know. Thank you right so to wrap up then um, final thoughts from each of you please on whether the code is going to make a material difference to the way that unscrupulous, as the government calls them, employers approach terminating and re-engaging. If and when it does come in, of course, because as Simon said, we don't quite know when that will be. Yeah. So I, kick I off think or... I... Yes, kick off, Simon. Well, you're both keen, you see. I thought this was going to be the tricky <laughs> bit. <for you. laughs> no, off you go, Simon. I've forgotten what I'm going to say now. Um, well, I think that the... Um, code will make a difference it will make employers think uh, much more carefully about the process that they adopt i think they're likely to be much less aggressive and gung-ho at least on the face of it and i suspect that there will be many more challenges which are based on inadequate consultation than we've seen in the past uh, where people have been subjected to fire and rehab Yes, I, I mean, it will certainly make some difference. I don't think in the short term it will make a huge difference for unscrupulous employers because they'll be watching what the employment judges do in respect of the extent of the punitive measures that they can put in place. So I think we need a few decisions first before we can say um, whether the code has um, been effective and whether it's 
um, achieved its it, it, its purpose in respect to that extra layer of consultation. I know that's there's a slight uh, hesitation on how much of a change is going to make. Rebecca, maybe a bit like me, we'll wait and see exactly how the uh, the truly unscrupulous responds. But of course, all our listeners are not unscrupulous in way, shape, or form. So uh, Simon is, I'm sure, right with that. The code will have the impact, uh, and we need to obviously watch it develop to its final form. Um, hopefully before the end of this current parliament. Right, thank you both uh, very much. Um, and all that remains for me to say is don't forget to follow our podcast on uh, the LinkedIn and the website, you can find that. And uh, there'll also be a summary of the points we've discussed with some links to a reading list of materials as well on the website. Um, thank you, Simon. Thank you, Rebecca. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you. Thank you.